the war is moving toward an end. What was the outcome for the 115th? I mean, how many losses did they uh, suffer uh, during the war? There winds up being a few eras in which we have the original thousand or so in the regiment, and there are recruits that are brought in by 63 and again in 54 as replacement troops. So there's nearly 1,200 altogether that will fight in the 115th and killed in, in action. You have about 300 of those that won't come back. Uh, you have a couple hundred that will die of diseases several hundred with, with severe wounds that, uh, you know, put them on a disability list for the rest of the war or they return home. Hi, I'm David Brooks from the Fulton County Historical Society and the Fulton County Museum in Gloversville, New York. And I'm here to talk about the Ironhearted, the 115th New York State Volunteer Regiment that was mustered into service during the American Civil War from the counties of Fulton, Montgomery, Saratoga, and Hamilton in upstate New York. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our topic, America's Civil War, story of the 115th New York Volunteers who enlisted in the war effort from Montgomery, Fulton, and Saratoga counties. Our guest is David Brooks, who is Education Director of the Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site and a board member of the Fulton County Historical Society in Gloversville. When the Civil War began, uh, President uh, Lincoln asked for volunteers, and the 115th was formed because of that? Uh, pretty close to it. That was uh, Lincoln's second call for volunteers in 1862. He called upon all of the states to fill out some new regiments, and in particular, Governor Morgan in New York State declared that each senatorial district would be required to enlist a regiment to fight in pre- preservation of the Union. And so was that this, the Senate district, the, the uh, three counties of uh, Fulton, Montgomery, and Saratoga? Yeah, and there was, there was a Fulton, Montgomery, Saratoga, and Hamilton County. So Hamilton County, uh, much like it is today, was, was fairly rural and really filled out their quota about uh, half of a company. Uh, so regiments filled out with companies of about 100 men per company. So they're looking for 1,000 troops. David, you did a presentation on the 115th uh, at, a, at a talk recently for, the, I believe, the Saratoga County Historical Society. You made reference to the camp where they left from Fonda. I think they called it Camp Mohawk. Correct. Yeah, it was either Camp Mohawk or Camp Fonda. And that's, uh, if you're on the arterial in uh, Fulton County and you're headed down into Fonda, it's on the hill, or that's where it was. It's located, there's a... Uh, a few businesses now in the Mohawk Volunteer Fire Department just built a, a large fire department right about where that camp was, where these uh, men and boys from the, the local rural communities and small cities all mustered into service in September of uh, 1862. Now, when the war was over, a member of the regiment, James Clark from Clifton Park, wrote a history of the 115th and titled it the Iron-Hearted Regiment. So it's often referred to as the Iron-Hearted Regiment. But uh, Mark Silo, who I guess I would say is an independent scholar, comes from uh, Loudonville, who's uh, researched the 115th, said he's never found any reference, uh, other reference to the Iron-Hearted Regiment during the war itself. Correct, yeah. James Clark was in Company H, and he was released from duty just a little bit before the very end of the war. He was able to make it home on disability. 
And uh, just a couple of months after the official closeout of the Civil War in April of 65, he published a, a, a tremendous regimental history uh, for the 115th, including you know, newspaper articles, letters back home, a lot of primary documents and his own personal experiences, a little bit fanciful in a lot of ways. And, and I agree with Silo's uh, assertion that there's not any real documentation about the Ironhearted, and maybe it was a really good editorial decision to make the title uh, Ironhearted. And there's several other documents and correspondence from the 115th during the war. Uh, so during my presentation and other conversations I have about the regiment, I like to refer to it as the Flying Infantry. Uh, that's actually several documents where they declare themselves that way. Uh, there's actually a letter from Colonel Salmon that, that he calls them the Flying Infantry, the Regimental Surgeon, Dr. Sutton, uh, science correspondence when they're headquartered outside in their winter camp outside of Washington, D.C., he signed the correspondence, Governor Morgan's Flying Infantry, Headquarters 115th Regiment, New York City Volunteers. Uh, so because of their propensity to, to have been moved around a lot already by this point in time, they're calling themselves the Flying Infantry. And also it's said that the local area met its quota in a month. Yeah, it was very quick. Uh, that you know, This is a point where uh, the war has been going on for about a year and a bit, and there's letters to the local newspapers from other soldiers and other local troops that have joined up in other regiments. Um, I have a family connection to 115th with having ancestors that fought in it. There were four brothers that went to war and only two that came back. Of those four, two of them were in the 115th and the other two, one joined a regiment that was an artillery regiment out of New York City and then Another one of the ancestors was from the Bemis Heights Regiment, the uh, the 77th out of Saratoga County. They, the 115th, kind of ran into trouble from the get-go. They reached Baltimore, Maryland, by train, and the men had to go f- march from one train to another train, and they, it says here, encountered hostility. What hap- happened to them down there? The interesting uh, when they depart out of Fonda, Clark and his regimental history makes a really good point of saying for each step that they made it closer to the front line, the less and less their accommodations were. So it's first-class cars, the cattle cars, to boats. And uh, so when they arrive in the Maryland area and just outside of Baltimore, they met with these skirmishes. This is uh, that summer campaign that General Lee of the Confederacy is making into the north trying to bring the war out of Virginia uh, in 62 that they are they're encapsulating around the Harper's Ferry area, the infamous Harper's Ferry of uh, John Brown's raid, and there's an armory there, and it's also connected in with the CNO Canal and railroad lines, so it's a, a major hub for transportation. Uh, so the Confederacy is trying to secure that location. 115th are deployed into that area, and immediately are met with skirmishing and their first experience within literally within just three weeks of being mustered in that they are on the front lines experiencing casualties as the the war is raging around them. Great disappointment and and fear and just probably excitement, too, that this is happening so quickly for them. Something I never heard of until I read about this uh, for the 115th, there was a battle of Harper's Ferry, Virginia, which is now in West Virginia, and the 115th were among a group of 11,000 soldiers that the Union surrendered, or what was this, the story there? Yeah, so the, there's a, a colonel, Dixon Miles, who's in charge of uh, 
that area. I uh, sort of overtasked. He's kind of the, the wrong man at the wrong place in the wrong time. Uh, so you have General Lee and uh, uh, Stonewall Jackson and A.P. Hill. So these major Confederate uh, generals have gone down in the annals of history at this point are trying to bottle up that area. Harper's Ferry, if anybody's been there, uh, you know, it, it's, it's surrounded by these, these hills, these heights. And so the 115th are amongst these Union troops that are trying to hold this very indefensible position of Harper's Ferry. They get bottled up, and Miles surrenders the entire lot of the Union uh, garrison and, and troops in that area, um, which for the 115th and a lot of these other men uh, is a huge disappointment. Again, they're, they're fresh uh, on the line, and they're green, but they're immediately met with being surrendered. And... Uh, becoming prisoners of war, and that's also maybe a savior for a lot of them because very soon afterwards, as they're actually marching from being held prisoners to get on trains to go to uh, Camp Douglas, that they are actually within earshot of the Battle of Antietam, which is, as many of your listeners will probably know, the single bloodiest day in American history uh, so far as casualties on the field of Antietam. Uh, so these, these men that were surrendered, uh, though disappointed, probably missed out on being a part of that uh, terrible battle. Now, the 115th, you say they became prisoners of war, but they weren't held by the Confederates. They were held by the Union. Correct. This is before, um, well, there's, there's this honorary system of war at this point in time uh, where you are captured and you are awaiting for exchange or parole. Uh, so the 115th are actually shipped off on federal trains to Camp Douglas just outside of Chicago, Illinois, uh, where they're to be held and not to fight in any sort of capacity or supply uh, manual labor or support of the war effort. Uh, so they're barracked at Camp Douglas with these other you know, 10,000 federal troops awaiting for an exchange uh, where the Union would have had to take an equal number or close to it of Confederate prisoners, and they would be exchanged. Um, as some folks might know, later on in the war, that exchange system falls apart, and that's where it leads to you know, places like Anderson Prison Camp or Elmira in the north, uh, just these terrible images of prisoners of war. So uh, at this mm-hmm. point in time in late 62, they're still on the parole system, so the federal troops are held kind of under guard of their own government. And then ultimately, the 115th is, it said they were boarding a train as their prisoner of war status ended, and then their barracks caught fire. And uh, what was the story about the barracks? Well, that, that's, that's this level of controversy, although the 115th will be cleared uh, by the courts in Washington, uh, the military courts will clear them of any wrongdoing. Uh, but it was where they boarded their trains to leave Camp Douglas after being there for about six weeks. And the barracks of the occupied, which were old horse stables, uh, burned to the ground. And there was some accusations, 115th, you know, they're cheering because they're getting on their train and leaving, that they were excited to, to burn their, their barracks down because, you know, it's a paradise of mud. They didn't want to be there. Uh, the other part is that there's a lot of mutiny and other drunkenness and, and uh, court-martials and things that are going on amongst all of the federal troops at Camp Douglas. There, there's boredom and tedium and a lack of 
of discipline that's happening there. And a lot of people take French leave or they, they desert at this point in time. Um, mm. The 115th, it's noted, particularly James Clark, right, uh, in his work, that the 115th weren't really mutinous. There was few that disappeared uh, or deserted, but they weren't really the agitators. And so they were kind of tasked with being provost guards or MPs to to kind of control what was going on. So when they left, the, the suspicion would be that either it was an intentional act by other federal troops to burn the barracks and get them in trouble for it, or it was just simply that people went in and were looting through whatever had been left behind. And it was cold, there was coals and, and embers in the wood stoves. Uh, they were probably tipped over or dumped out. They could have started that fire too. And I think that uh, the leader of the 115th, Colonel Simeon Sammons, when he had uh, gone to Washington to clear their name, had really made that assertion that nobody could be positive of how that fire started. The 115th would not be responsible. But they went into, had to do manual labor for a year in uh, South Carolina? Yeah, what winds up happening is they are paroled, but because of that investigation, and, and even though they would be cleared and paid, uh, it's sort of like this hanging suspicion over the regiment. Uh, for those actions. Uh, so in the Hilton Head area, in the Carolinas, uh, occasionally there's a detachment out of a company that would go into skirmishing lines or or could do other work that were more military. Um, but for the most part, or they call it the lost summer, where they spend a lot of that, that following summer just performing manual labor and, and caring for um, you know the, the camp areas uh, near Hilton Head um, for the federal troops. But eventually, the 115th is sent to a, a theater of the Civil War that you don't hear that much about in in Florida, and they uh, took part and uh, were decimated, I guess would be the word, or you maybe can describe it better, in the Battle of a Lusty Florida. Right. So they're, they're, as they leave the Carolinas, they're, they're attached to Barton's Brigade, and uh, that's underneath an expedition by General Seymour. They're heading down to Florida. They're going to go through. Um, the, Florida has this uh, transportation line across it toward Jacksonville of train uh, tracks and up into Georgia. And Florida is essentially providing uh, particularly pork. A lot of hogs are being shipped up into Georgia to help support the Confederate war effort. Uh, so the idea is they're going to cut off the peninsula of Florida and that kind of military support and and. So these federal troops are sent in, and uh, they kind of overstep where they were intended to go. They they go inland a bit too far, and there's a, it's Ocean Pond is what the Confederacy would call it. And there's a swampy area, there's a stretch of solid ground because of the railroad line going through there. Uh, so the federal troops, they march into this area, and it's essentially uh, not exactly a, an ambush, but it's there's, there's a trap waiting to spring for them at that point. Um, so there's... Uh, about 10,000 soldiers involved. It's 5,000 per side. It's a fairly equally matched battle between the Confederacy and the Union. And you have a lot of Georgia and uh, South Carolina troops that are down in Florida opposing uh, the federal troops, and that's part of Barton's Brigade, uh, as I mentioned, and that also incorporates some of the 54th Massachusetts or the, the CT troops, the colored troops, and um, so the 115th are lined up on the extreme right flank during this battle. And it's actually one of the, the highest percentage of casualties for participants uh, during the Civil War. It's, uh, it's the slugfest in the pines of Olusti, Florida, that occurs over several hours. 
uh, you know, round after round being uh, fired at each other. And uh, there's there's over 40% casualty rate on both sides, uh, which is a very high standard uh, to meet when it comes to, to battles, when it comes uh, to casualties. Um, but ultimately what happens is the Confederates kind of throw their entire force into it. Uh, the federal troops under Seymour are just kind of piecemealing their troops in. Um, so the Confederates turn that blue tide, and the, the Union troops um, fall back. 115th, though, they're disappointed in having to, to fall back. You know, they've now kind of redeemed themselves from Harper's Ferry and Camp Douglas as having stood, you know, the, the maelstrom of battle and stood there and held that right flank. You've made reference several times to the the original colonel of the 115th, who was a, a man named Simeon Sammons, I believe, from the uh, Fonda area. <laughs> I don't want to get, because you're telling quite a dramatic story, but, but it seemed to me there was a little footnote about Sammons, Simeon Sammons, meeting the Marquis de Lafayette down at what we call Schoharie Crossing, didn't he? Yeah, so there's reminiscence, um, as he's an old man, a few years before he passes, that were collected, uh, of when he was a small boy, 1824, uh, with his father uh, traveling along uh, near the canal and hearing that the Marquis de Lafayette, uh, on his grand tour of America, was using the canal to come through. And uh, so he reminisces about his father uh, having known the Marquis, uh, as the Marquis had visited the area during the Revolution, and the Sammons family uh, had actually been leaseholders on the old uh, Sir William Johnson and John Johnson property in, in Johnstown. Uh, so they had met at several points during the, the Revolution. Um, so the Marquis apparently recognized Sammons' father, and they had a nice conversation, uh, and, and Marquis was allowed to go on his way. Now, in Alusty, Colonel Sammons gets wounded, but he keeps going, at least for a time. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's injured in the foot, uh, and his horse is killed. And actually, what winds up putting him uh, ultimately for a period of time out of commission is uh, an injury to his eye as he fell from his horse. Uh, so he's still in command of the the unit through the the battle, uh, and he'll convalesce in Florida for about five months before he can return to the regiment. Uh, so in that period of time, Sammons is injured and. There's the lieutenant colonel who had, um, during that lost summer in particular, had left. There was a lieutenant colonel bachelor who had left the, the regiment. So that kind of falls on to the leadership of the regiment goes to Major Walrath, Ezra Walrath. Um, mm. And he's apparently quite loved by the, the rest of the regiment as a, a very capable leader. And the uh, they leave Florida and they end up fighting in Virginia? Yes, yeah, so they'll head back up with the Army of the James, and they're, they're fighting uh, in that area known as Bermuda 100. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the Federal Army at that point in time is, is realizing, you know, Grant's come in as the, the leader of the, the Union Army, and if they can keep the Confederacy kind of on its heels and constantly in motion, having to deflect around Richmond, um, that they're going to, to wear out the Confederate resources. Uh, so particularly the 115th is involved in the 10th Corps, that uh, they're they're stationed in that area around Virginia, but they're constantly being deployed in these small little battles and skirmishes, uh, kind of keeping the Confederacy moving and uh, deflecting from their own capital. The war is moving toward an end. And what was the out- outcome for the 115th? I mean, how many 
losses did they suffer during uh, during the war? So out of the, uh, there winds up being a few eras in which we have the original thousand or so in the regiment, uh, and, and there are recruits that are brought in by 63 and again in 64 as replacement troops. So there's nearly 1,200 altogether that will fight in the 115th and uh, killed or in, in action. You have about 300 of those that won't come back. Uh, you have a couple hundred that will die of diseases, uh, several hundred with, with severe wounds that, uh, you know, put them on a disability list for the rest of the war or they return home. Do you know how this compares with other regiments? I mean, were they um, more di- wounded and killed than others, or is this typical of the Civil War? It, it is fairly typical. Uh, if you look at the, the bar- broad uh, tapestry of, of regiments, particularly in the north during the war, uh, you have some regiments that are engaged in conflicts that are you know, in Cold Harbor, where an entire regiment is almost completely decimated, uh, and then you have other regiments that are only in camp duty. So on the average, uh, having that sort of percentage of, of killed and wounded uh, is pretty typical. The regiment comes home. What do you suppose that was like? I'm at, there, there's several um, letters back home as they're, as, as they're fighting the war. Uh, that kind of indicate their mindset to, in that wishful thinking of a soldier to, to have their honorable duty but to still be home and to see their families. Um, so their their trip back home, they miss out on all the major parades in Washington and New York City, uh, but they, they make their way um, by boat up the Hudson and, and get onto a train and eventually make it uh, near Albany uh, where they have to wait uh, about a week or so for the paymaster to pay them out and for their final discharge papers to come through. And they're actually released from duty on July 3rd. Uh, and so 1865, it's sort of their own independence day that they get to celebrate from uh, service to the Army. Uh, but they come home and, you know, it's, it's boys and men that, you know, there's, there's obvious wounds um, and then there's the not-so-obvious wounds. Uh, one of the ways that a lot of the Civil War soldiers uh, on both sides, but uh, particularly in the North, they create fraternal organizations like the Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, and so there's great fanfare as they come home, uh, particularly as the victors, um, but they, they have a fraternity that they will establish that uh, as a way for them to, to come to terms with uh, what they had seen and witnessed in their brotherhood. The man who was the original leader, Simeon Sammons, he continues in public life, right? Right. He, he, um, because of his injuries, um, and he suffers another wound in the thigh uh, during the Battle of um, the Crater at Petersburg, uh, where the, the 115th had been involved in. Um, so he, he will leave the regiment before the end of the war and uh, writes a wonderful farewell letter to them talking about how that they had joined uh, before there were bounties, before people were being paid uh, sums to join up, that they were entirely volunteers and fought with great honor and, and dignity in their service, despite all their hard Um So he went on, you know, he continued through uh, public uh, life. He had been an assemblyman and, uh, you know, the head of the, the local Democratic Committee, uh, president of the Agriculture Society, uh, well-revered in the local area. There's a, a wonderful headstone that was erected for him by the um, GAR uh, in the Salmonsville Cemetery, uh, featuring the likeness of his face. Is there any place in the area 
where there are um, historical displays or something like that about the 115th? Yeah, there's there's a few places in the, the local Mohawk Valley area that are, are tremendous resources. Uh, there are some great GAR cemetery uh, plots in, in some of the local cemeteries. A uh, couple of the, the really great locations, if you're interested in the 115th, to, to do research or uh, to check out some artifacts would be uh, the Montgomery County Department of History and Archives uh, mm-hmm. is a tremendous resource, and they do hold some of the materials, particularly the Salmon's uh, documents and uh, his hat and sword and epaulets that he wore on his uniform. Uh, the um, library, the Margaret Rainey Library in St. Johnsville, actually uh, does contain some items, particularly uh, Peter Keck, the shoe that he returned with after the mine explosion at Fort Fisher, the other one lost to the sand after the mine had exploded. Um, so there's there are some great resources in the, the area. The Montgomery County Historical Society does have some 115th as well as other Civil War regiments or other Civil War soldier uh, items in, in their collection as well. Our guest has been David Brooks, Education Director of the Schoharie Crossing State Historic Site and a board member of the Fulton County Historical Society in Gloversville. Okay, we, we gather we gather our thoughts here, Bob, for a little bit of the, the history mystery. Dave and, Dave and Bob tossing this back and forth. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's set up the, uh, the mystery with a question. We spend a lot of time discussing the British Indian agent in the 1700s who was a special friend and ally to the Mohawk Indian nation. Was this man, here comes the question, mm-hmm. Sir John Burgoyne, Sir William Johnson, Sir Horatio Gates, or Sir DeWitt Clinton, sir? The answer in a moment. We have only a few months to go in our annual fundraising drive for the Historian's Podcast. We have a goal of $7,000 for the year. We've raised a little more than half of that. If you were able, I hope you can make a donation today. To donate, please write a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and mail to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. You can also make a credit card donation. Visit our website, bobcudmore.com, and highlighted in blue is a link to our GoFundMe campaign. And thank you very much. And the answer to the history mystery, Sir William Johnson. Sir William Johnson was the British Indian agent in upstate New York who was responsible for England having cordial relations, more or less, with the Mohawk Indian nation. Our guest on the Historian's Podcast was David Brooks, who discussed the 115th New York Volunteer Regiment in the Civil War. Here's another story from the Civil War. Bruce Anderson, an African-American buried in Amsterdam, fought alongside a Kanajahari white man, Zachariah Neer, in a daring mission during the Battle of Fort Fisher, North Carolina. The Union was trying to capture the fort, but there was a palisade or wooden wall with rebel sharpshooters behind it that made it impossible for the Union Army to advance. 
The commander asked for volunteers, and Near and Anderson were among the volunteers who moved forward with axes to cut a hole in the wooden wall. They succeeded in that, but most of the people who were trying that uh, were killed. Only uh, Anderson, Near, and a few others survived. The government was going to give them the Congressional Medal of Honor uh, for this a brave action in more time, but the paperwork was lost. In the uh, 1890s, Near got his medal, and years later, Bruce Anderson got an attorney and got his medal in 1914. He died in 1922 and is buried at Green Hill Cemetery. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. It's produced by Dave Green. I'm Bob Cudworth.